What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. I'm Sean Braswell. Welcome to Flashback. We're doing something a little different in this episode. We're running a special series about the worst incident of election violence in American history, an event that is almost forgotten today. It happened a century ago, on Election Day, 1920, in the town of Ocoee, Florida. The victims were hundreds of black residents. The perpetrators were their white neighbors. And the reason was that black citizens had gone to the polls and tried to vote. Our grandmother was one of the most bravest mm. females, mm -hmm. and, and the word brave is probably not strong enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was not afraid of mm. anything nor anybody. Nobody. Nobody. That's Janice Nelson and her brother, Pastor Stephen Nunn. Their grandmother was Caritha Perry Caldwell. She was a constant presence in their lives growing up in Tampa, Florida. She just decided for whatever reason to talk to Steve and I when we were kids to just, you know, tell us this story, really. The story of what happened in Caritha's hometown of Coe, Florida on Election Day, 1920. I remember driving over to her home that particular morning uh, because I wanted her to make me breakfast. Uh, she had the old iron skillet pan and she would fry up some uh, rib bacon and, and grits and eggs. Here's what Caritha Perry wanted her grandchildren to know. When she was a teenager, her father, Julius July Perry, and his good friend Mose Norman were prosperous landowners. 
They were leaders of the sizable black community in a central Florida town called Ocoee. On election day 1920, Mose Norman tried to vote. A few hours later, an armed white mob surrounded the Perry's family farmhouse. Caritha Perry told her grandchildren that before long, the white men were shooting into the house. It was surreal. I, I really, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And yet I knew it was real. It makes sense to me now. Then it didn't really make sense. You know, I knew this, I knew it happened, but I just didn't take that in at that time as a child. I couldn't, I couldn't phantom all of that. Caritha told them she was shot in the arm. She wanted me to know about the bullet wound. So she would always show me and point to it. And then, of course, after she did that, she would tell me, um, you know, about what took place. I saw her pain, but I also knew she wanted me to know how courageous she was. And she was willing to stay there next to her dad <laughs> to the death if it, if it was going to take that. She had every intent uh, to do that. It hurt her, and yet it drove her also to be very angry, and she did not really want to mention the name of Okoye or ever return to Okoye again. I'm Eugene S. Robinson. You're listening to the Election Day Massacre from Ozzy Media. A warning, this episode contains graphic descriptions of racial violence. sort of a confrontation when they knew that July Perry and Mose Norman were among the activists involved in voting. So the attention of the white people sort of uh, focused on them. Marvin Dunn is the author of A History of Florida Through Black Eyes. The initial group that went out was led by a man named Sam Salisbury, who was a well-known white man, very popular man, uh, not a law enforcement officer, but was deputized to go out and find out what happened to the polls. Sam Salisbury was a veteran, a former Army colonel. Marvin Dunn says a heavily armed white man he led to July Perry's farmhouse called themselves a posse. Paul Ortiz, a historian at the University of Florida, did seminal research on the incident. In a sense, what they're trying to do is pacify him, to kind of take him out of the equation. They feel if they can silence him, then they can stop all this voting nonsense and save white supremacy. What happened at July Perry's house? Why, why did it get so violent so quickly? Pamela Schwartz, chief curator of the Orange County Regional History Center, put together a major exhibition of the Ocoee massacre. Who actually shot who? Who actually said what? There's so many different versions. July Perry's daughter, Caritha, Janice Nelson and Stephen Nunn's grandmother, was inside the house when the mob showed up. She told me that at a certain point in time, uh, some of the white residents, um, men of the uh, city of Okoye came to their home and basically made a demand for her father to come outside and they wanted to talk. I've always owned a gun and, you know, I grew up in a gun culture. And, you know, if someone comes up to my doorstep and tells me that I need to, to come out of my house unarmed, and they want to talk with me, um, that's a threat. And when Sam Salisbury uh, demanded July Perry to come out of his house, Perry came out of his house and um, asked to go back inside to get his coat. And that's when this, this uh, struggle ensued. 
someone attempted to force their way in and there was some gunfire, both from um, those outside of the house firing in and from her and her father inside of the house firing out. She said that the gunfire was so great that you could see the bullet tracers uh, coming through all angles in the house, just flying all over the place. Caritha was not the only person shot that night. Her father was shot multiple times. He uh, told her that he wanted her to get her mother and the children out of the house. Caritha's mother, Estelle, was not in good health. Caritha's brothers and sister were young children. I felt like he was saying, you know what? I'm the captain of the ship here. And so guess what? You guys go get out if you can but I've got to stay. I, I think even if he hadn't been wounded, he, probably, he, would, he was going to stay and fight to the bitter end no matter what. She re recalls asking uh, herself and him, you know, how we're going to get out because they were surrounded. And he said, pray and the Lord will show you a way. And she said, she started praying and said, Lord, help us to get out of here. Help me to get my mom and my, my brothers and sister out of here. And she said, um, there was a cat hole or some type of an open in the bottom of the door. She lifted the little hatch and she said that there was a beam of light, like from the moon, but it was just this beam of light that shined a path through this particular high growth or cornfield. And she said they proceeded on their stomachs to crawl through that um, path that had been illuminated. And she said, while they were calling, she said, um, we could see the feet of the men who were surrounding the home. Some of them, we could literally see their feet and we could hear them talking and, and still firing. And yet um, they never saw us. Caritha, Estelle and the children escaped through the field. Members of the white mob would later claim that, quote, 37 armed Negroes, end quote, participated in the shootout. But it's more likely that it was just the Perry family and a couple of hired hands who held off the assailants. At least six members of the white mob were wounded in the gun battle. Two others died. They were killed by friendly fire. Other white men shot through the house and killed their comrades. And I found this out by examining the funeral home records of the men who were buried, uh, which included a note from the sheriff documenting that the men had been killed by friendly fire. It's one of the few records of what happened that night. You know, there's all of these details that we'll never factually know. There's just no way because no records and accounts were kept. No full investigation was done. Perry's family made it to safety, but not for long. July Perry's wife and daughter, Estelle and Caritha, respectively, are captured. They're taken to the jail in Tampa. Caritha and Estelle were charged with murdering the two members of the white mob who were killed. The charges were eventually dropped, but not before Caritha and her mother had spent a month in jail. She said they came in and uh, told them that they were free to go, but to never, ever uh, return to uh, Okoye again. Years later, Caritha Perry was asked by an Orlando newspaper if she had ever gone back to Okoye. She replied, no, God, I don't ever want to see it, not even on a map.
As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, everyone. I'm Mark. I'm Greg. I'm Brendan. And this is a trailer for a new podcast called Get It to Dutch, A Screenwriter's Journey. It's about screenwriting. And a journey. The three of us play aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a hit Hollywood script to famous producer Dutch Huxley. Well, I would say one of us is aspiring and the other two are sort of struggling. Which one of us is aspiring? Well, they're going to have to listen to the podcast. Hmm. But I don't know. And I made the podcast. I made the podcast. And I think you guys were along for the ride. Each week we bring in a script, we read it, and then we give each other notes. And you'll also hear about our adventures navigating the Hollywood uh, system. The show features amazing guests like Tim Robinson, Lily Sullivan, Weird Al Yankovic, and Rob Hubel. Like any great blockbuster, it's filled with heartbreak, adventure, suspense, and just a little tasteful nudity. And some distasteful nudity. Sorry about that, guys. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1920, Mildred Board was a little girl in the next town over, Apopka, Florida. Ms. Board has since passed away, but she recorded an oral history a few years ago. We're playing excerpts of it, courtesy of the Orange County Regional History Center. It's one of just a few first-hand accounts of the events of that election day. The night of the riot, Mose Norman came to this house. And I remember that he had on a night shirt. And I don't know whether my dad came with him or he got that far and they brought him on here. And my dad said to him, well, Mose, how did you get out of Okoye? He said, just like a rabbit in the wind, I shall never forget it. Mose Norman escaped from Okoye in his car. There were reports that he eventually settled up north in New York City. July Perry did not escape. He made it out of the farmhouse into a nearby sugarcane field, but he was soon discovered. His little dog betrayed him. When uh, July Perry was shot, he went down in, in the cane patch. And Jip was the little dog's name. He went down and barked. And that's when the mob found him in the cane patch. The deputized mob arrested Perry. There's so many different stories 
they shot him there, but they supposed to have carried him, I thought, to the um, police station in Okoye. But you know, as I can remember, there wasn't a police station in Okoye. More likely, July Perry was taken to the police station in Orlando, a much bigger town. Word gets to Orlando, as far away as Orlando, uh, that there's a Negro uprising, but that's a code for Negroes are trying to vote. And so carloads of white people began uh, mobilizing from as far away as Orlando uh, and then drive to Ocoee. There's an electronic signboard in, in Orlando, and it's used on election day. But not only to tally votes. But then someone changes that signboard to direct people to Ocoee. 50 carloads of white men from Orlando descended on the black neighborhoods in Ocoee. It, it's like, you know, I'm a third generation military veteran. And so when I look at places like Ocoee, I see intelligence, I see supply, uh, I see planning. And what I mean by this is that carloads of white individuals, many of them start from Orlando and they drive all the way into Ocoee and they knew who to target. They knew who the leadership was. drive to Ocoee, and they began to torch and burn and, and loot and pillage this, this entire you know, community. That evening and into the night, white vigilantes set fire to black people's homes, businesses, and churches in Ocoee. They shot at people trying to escape the flames. I mean, basically, people are defending their homes as this white you know, paramilitary operation is tearing through their their, their neighborhoods. People put up a defense uh, in, in Ocoee. They don't just lay down and, and, and offer themselves up to the, to, to the firing squad, if you will. But we could smell. Somebody said, well, how could you smell the smoke? I said, I can smell the smoke coming from Africa. <laughs> so it was something that you could smell the smoke. <laughs> You knew something was going on. It's one of the most dramatic days in American history, all across the state. You know, what, what happens in Florida is really an example. It's kind of a metaphor for American, you know, American history in 1920. The systematic purging, uh, ethnic cleansing uh, of black people, that's really the outcome. We don't like to use the term ethnic cleansing unless we can use it in Eastern Europe, right? We don't like to use the word pogrom unless we can use it in, in you know, in Africa or, you know, someplace else. But it, it happens here. There is no way we will ever factually probably know how many Black people were killed that night. Records were intentionally not kept. Given the current research, we as historians will say that at least four Black people were murdered. But many accounts put the death toll much higher. Between 30 and 60 Black residents were killed. Historian Marvin Dunn. They burned a whole section of the Black community. Uh, we don't know if there were folks burned up in those houses or not. Probably there were. Basically, you had a choice. You can leave and get shot or you can stay and burn. 
and they burned to death and they were put in pauper's caskets and buried in a mass grave. Once uh, the white mob started burning people's homes and churches, uh, people left. Every single black person in Ocoee that night, living or visiting, lost something. Their sense of safety, their home, their property, whether they were a renter or a landowner, um, sometimes their life. Those who survived the flames and gunfire escaped into the surrounding swamps. The Florida Times Union reported the next day that black survivors were seen walking along highways many miles from Ocoee. In the weeks and months that followed, virtually every single black person fled the town. And, and they looked like refugees from, from a war zone. That, those, those are the, the descriptions we have of people leaving in wagons with all of their possessions. White people lining the roads, cheering, jeering. You lost, we won. A day that had begun with hopes of a better life and a stronger democracy in Florida came to an almost unthinkable end as Okoe burned into the night. Back in Orlando, another violent crowd had gathered. July Perry is in mortal danger. In the jail in Orlando, he uh, is taken by a lunch mob. Pamela Schwartz. He is brutalized. There are many versions of what happened to him, some very, very descriptive and graphic. But he is taken, he is lynched, he's hanged. If you leave a poplar and go to the country club road a block from Colonial, there was an oak tree. I don't know where it's the same oak tree, but there is a big oak tree right now. They uh, tied him up and let him hang from that tree for a while. The tree was near the entrance to the Orlando Country Club, by some accounts, in view of the house of John Cheney, a white judge who tried to help black citizens of Ocoee vote. The story went that July was intentionally hanged, um, you know, in view of Cheney's house, but that it was across this lake and it was up by Country Club. At the time, the way the trees and everything were, like when we look back at historic photos of that lake and different things, like. I don't think anybody could have seen anything from the judge's house. So I think that that is a thing that became part of the lore. But there was an unmistakable message. That's what lynching was about. Historian Paul Ortiz. It was really about sending a lesson to the entire black and white and Hispanic communities, you know, whether it was in the Southwest or in Florida, wherever. We're in charge here and we don't follow the law. We are the law. A local black undertaker took down Perry's corpse from the tree the next day. Oh, had done so many things to his body. There wasn't too much left hanging because they had just cut his body up in pieces. But they took whatever they could and I'm sure they embalmed him and they buried him. The terror inflicted on the black citizens of Okoe didn't end with election day. The story has always gone that everybody left immediately. The black community left, they never came back. The story after is far more nuanced and horrific, I think personally, um, than that. There's an official cover-up that goes on for decades after the event. There's just so, so much to the story. I think the most horrific thing is 
that we don't know and we don't know by design. By design, we don't have records. We don't have names for the people who were killed. We don't know what homes burned and which ones don't. We don't know what happened to people and where they went. What we do know is that the terror in Ocoee was not carried out only by people in masks and robes. Much of it was committed openly. And the campaign to keep black people from voting in Florida was not limited to anonymous letters from the Ku Klux Klan. Editorials were printed in the most prominent newspapers in the state. When the Orlando Sentinel, the Miami Herald say that white supremacy, that our foundation, the foundation of our civilization, white supremacy is in, is in danger, we have to take them seriously. And when we take them seriously, we realize that they're going to do anything they can to break up any challenge to their power system. And this is why so many white people descend upon a colleague because they're trying to send a lesson to that. Not only are you not going to vote today, you're never going to vote. What happened in Ocoee was not just about one election. What happened next would take years to orchestrate and execute. In part three of the Election Day Massacre. Where did everybody go? And then you look for the families and the histories and you try to find where they are today and you can't find people. You can't find them. They just lost and gone. Nobody's ever held responsible in any way, shape or form for what happens at Ocoee. It was government supported land up. The scripture says thou shall not steal. They stole it and they need to give it back. This episode of Flashback, The Election Day Massacre, was written by Sean Braswell and voiced by me, Eugene S. Robinson. It was produced by Maeve McGoran and Iore Odigizua. Chris Hoff engineered our show. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love comedy movies and Hollywood satire, you're going to want to listen to a brand new podcast called Get It to Dutch. In Get It to Dutch, we play three aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a script to big-time Hollywood producer Dutch Huxley. Each week on the podcast, we perform a movie script right before your ears. It's like going to a movie with your eyes closed. And we have amazing guest stars, including Tim Robinson, Rob Hubel, Lily Sullivan, Jamie Moyer, and Weird Al Yankovic. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you can Get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.